0: Welcome to Euricron, a podcast about people whose names you may not be familiar with now, but you will remember their stories. Hi, I'm Scott Pitney, the host for Euricron. So without further ado, let's jump right into our next extraordinary story. We welcome our next guest okay. to your cron Eric Eisness who is the author of his new book, Gorilla in the Closet, a book about why the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, is becoming obsolete in an early history of the e- EPA and memoir. Eric has an engineering degree with from Vanderbilt University, and was later drafted out of the Peace Corps and served as a commissioned officer in the United States Navy in the riverine forces of Vietnam from 1968 to 1969. In 1970, Eric joined the Water Quality Administration, which became the core of the newly formed EPA, Eric would later write the EPA's first environmental impact statement eventually leaving in 1983 citing disenchantment over lack of management controls as to who speaks for the EPA. Eric would later would return later as a Reagan-appointed administrator for water having policy and budget management over three laws, the Federal Clean Water Act, the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act, and the Safe Drinking Water Act. Eric ran for Congress under the reform party ticket, earning 11.3% of the vote. He's also been interviewed on several major media outlets. In 2010, he started his book, Gorilla in the Closet, which is scheduled to be published this fall. You can see advanced content on his website, GorillaInTheCloset.com. Also, be sure to read Eric's blog, which can be found on his website. Eric, welcome to your crime.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: First and foremost, thank you for your service.
1: Well, I appreciate that. We didn't get that kind of reception when I came back from Vietnam and I served in San Francisco Bay. The, uh, my generation called me a baby killer. It was really hard. <laughs>
0: yeah, I've heard that term. That's that's terrible. But uh, yeah, different yeah. times for sure. Um, and uh, I was Eric and I were chatting a little bit before we uh, hit record. And uh, Eric, you're kind of uh, out in the mountains on the side of a road. Uh, you mentioned you're looking at buffalo and maybe some bear, and you're you're kind of out in out in uh, no man's land. It sounds like.
1: Well, yeah, I'm in the Black Hills of South Dakota. What, what's so ironic is that. My daughter is an ICU nurse in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, and 100% of her patients now are people from South Dakota who have COVID. None of them are from Colorado. So we've got a crazy world we're living in, uh, but I'm okay. I'm 76 and still kicking. Wow.
0: Well, Well, you, you sound fantastic. You don't sound 76. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's what a glass of wine will do for you. Yeah. Well, so I, was, there you
0: go. I was hoping you'd say something like that. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. So where is a good place to start your extraordinary story?
1: Well, let me start with why I wrote the book. That might begin a good starting point. Uh, I decided in 2010 to take a course at Colorado State University, which is in Fort Collins, where I live, in environmental policy and politics. And one night I was reading the assignments, and, and I was just stunned because I had served in the Reagan EPA during the SewerGate controversy between 1981, 83, where literally we were run out of town. And, uh, and I, uh, I was, uh, I approached the professor just as we were both walking into this classroom. And I said, why, why is everything so negative and so dismissive about the, the Reagan EPA? And he said they were bad people. And that was a real shot to the gut for me because I had heard that coming back from Vietnam. I was a bad person. I was a baby killer. And it was a vacuous comment. He was probably one of those anti-war processors back in the sixties because he was my, my same age. And I was stunned because I thought, you know, I'd asked him to go to coffee. I was there. I was one of those bad people. And that's what the literature says about us. And, so I just got really angry, and I said, I'm going to – so uh, this guy is a terrible teacher. He has tenure. He doesn't understand environmental policy or politics, and I'm going to write a book and, and t- teach him, the teacher of our young children these days, what this is really all about, what it's really like to be there rather than live as he has in a hermetically sealed bag all of his career, never served in public service. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wrote the book.
0: You stated the EPA should be abolished, and you feel the EPA is becoming obsolete. Can you explain that to us, yeah, why you feel that way?
1: Yeah, there, there are many layers to this argument, and I'll just give you one or two. First of all, EPA was formed on, Gen, on December 2nd, 1970. That was one day after my 26th birthday and a little over a year and a half after I returned from Vietnam. And it was formed by President Nixon uh, by executive order. It was not debated in Congress. And at the very end of the day, EPA was created as a political entity. It was called an independent agency, which normal people would think, well, that means it's not subject to the whims and fortunes of Pennsylvania Avenue and who's in power. But in fact, it was formed as a political agency. And people like me, You know who served and this is a quote from the constitution for the time being at the pleasure of the president uh you know were were political hacks and we came and go with went with the wind so epa you know every time you had a change of administration or a change within epa then the, the agenda would change. So there was never a strategic focus and there was never any management. It's a grossly mismanaged agency and uh, it it has no strategic focus. And that is a serious problem because we face the threat of climate change. Uh, we can talk about that as a separate item later. Yeah, we can't we can't put in place anything now that will last through the next administration. It's going to be changed. In fact, what Biden is trying to do is reverse everything that was done under the Trump administration. And today, as EPA EPA is, is now a wholly partisan organization. When the Democrats are in power, they never saw a problem that could, didn't have a federal solution from the banks of the Potomac River. And the Republican Party thinks EPA should be uh, reduced in its in its reach and, and and influenced if not abolished altogether so the problem is we have a political agency run by political hacks like me that are there building their resume they're not managing they don't they ignore everything that preceded them in fact they tend to think that everything that preceded them was wrong that's the hubris and then they try to do something for a year or two then they move on so we it, it's just obsolete it cannot effectively, do anything to assure the American people that we have clean air and clean water and we need to reboot and do something different. And my book is actually very helpful, hopeful. It talks about what we do next.
0: Yeah, and I definitely want to get into that, as you mentioned, um, several subjects to to talk about, uh, all very fascinating. On your website, it reads, the writing reflects his, Eric's service as a naval officer in the American war in Vietnam, and how that experience profoundly influenced his worldwide and career, or worldview, excuse me, in career at EPA, both at its founding and a decade later. How so?
1: Well, I, I got to hand it to you for actually noticing that comment. Uh, my book explains how the Vietnam War was, in many ways, the reason why we have such a strong federal environmental presence, uh, starting in 1969. And, 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 you know, and I lived it as a combat veteran, a decorated veteran, an injured veteran coming back to San Francisco Bay to serve my tour out. And at, it's, at, at uh, at Yerba Buena Island, which is called Treasure Island at the time. And, uh, and uh, being accused of being a baby killer by my own generation and no politician had the backbone to stand up and say these young men and women that we sent to Vietnam were doing their duty. They didn't do that. They, we were, they let us hang. And, uh, and, and the irony is that because the Vietnam War was so divisive and there was so much acrimony and anti-war movement, which was based where I lived in Berkeley in 1969 and 70, the uh, uh, you know the uh, the the whole uh, the link between Vietnam and the environmental movement is is that Congress needed something positive on their resume, and uh, President Nixon, who was a Southern Californian, who flew in on a helicopter on the beach at Santa Barbara uh, County when there was this oil spill of the Union oil rig out in the Pacific, out in the Pacific Ocean. And he was charged by people that were there cleaning up the beach and all the dead waters and fish and whatnot, dead fowl. And he said, I'm going to do something, you know, I'm going to take more care of the environment. So, you know, he and Congress needed something on their resume that was more positive than the, what was being televised into people's homes back in the 19, late 1960s. I mean, most of the listeners to this podcast probably can't identify with this because they're older. And so they they glommed onto the environment, and there really would not have been such a strong federal march towards passing a raft of environmental legislation in the 70s if it weren't for Vietnam. So it's a very interesting linkage, and I, and no one's ever made this, but believe me, it was there because I have testimony from research I've done to write this book, from people that were saying, you know, we we had the. You know, we were—the Vietnam War was a very negative thing. We had to find something more positive. We, we loved to talk about the environment. We didn't like to talk about Vietnam because it was a political dead end for every member of Congress. And so that's the link. And so that's why I make that comment in my book, or what will be the book.
0: No, that's interesting. I'm a few years behind you. I'm, I'm 58, but I remember as a kid all those images you'd see on the news constantly. And, yeah, that— that's a lot of negative negative imagery, but um, I had no idea that 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 was sort of a political motivation uh, to talk about the EPA just to, like you say, to put something positive on the uh, government's resume at that time.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And what? What? I'll just make another related point. Back in the, in the second half of the '60s apart from sex, drugs, and rock and roll. (laughs) I mean, you you had, I mean, there was, there was uh, the the younger generation, my generation was rebelling against the authoritarian rule of parents and of schools. And most of these kids were college or or were in college. It was the colleges were the nexus for the anti-war movement, the, the civil rights movement the, uh, environmental movement, uh, the gay rights movement. Uh, and, and they, and and at the time, as you may remember that we had John F Kennedy as president, who was a liberal and then Lyndon Johnson. So, you know, there was a, there was a political lineup of national leaders who were sympathetic to the views of young people. And, and, and there, it was just a time of enormous change. And San Francisco Bay was the epicenter. It was literally the epicenter of this huge social change. So it's not surprising that the environmental movement was just one more movement, along with uh, women leaving the home and uh, uh, birth control and what that meant. Uh, so it was just one more thing that was changing radically and dramatically. And no one saw it coming, but it resulted in a mass of federal legislation on the environment. The, sa- the Clean Air Act of 1970, the Clean Water Act of 1972, the, re- the Safe Drinking Water Act of 1974, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act of 1976, uh, the Superfund Law of 1980, and uh, and I'm missing a lot of others. Uh, there's a lot of others I'm not covering, so it just shows you What the confluence of all these social changes meant to our government, creating an EPA, creating laws to enforce from the federal government, from the banks, the Potomac River, uh, in a belief system that states had failed, which was not true. But that's the way it was portrayed. And there's consequences of that. And we'll talk about some of those political consequences as we go.
0: Sure. Eric, what were you like before – you entered the military like in high school and did what was politics on your radar at all
1: no you know I, you know my dad my dad founded in a, 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 what is now called an environmental engineering firm in 1951 with two partners uh charlie black and bill Crow, and my name is i mean it's been pronounced even bird's nest. I mean, so it was always <laughs> black crow and the other fella. It's never black crow and eisness. <laughs> and I was the other, fe- I was the son of the other fella. And he cast a huge shadow because he was a magnificent, brilliant, talented man who spoke well and had a great sense of comedic timing. And he was a rainmaker. He was a scientist. He had seven patents. He won every award from the American waterworks association and, and other related, organizations for his service and that field but you know as engineers at the dinner table in gainesville florida which i where i grew up you know the 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 people that came to dinner to the isis table were were his clients his equipment suppliers the utility directors his partners and it was just totally apolitical nobody gave a crap nobody talked about politics You know, engineers are problem solvers and engineers are like scientists don't get outside of our skin very comfortably. We we just stick to what we know. And in my case, in an engineer's case, we're problem solvers. So we really hone in on that. And we don't care about all the nonsense that goes on around us too much. The only the only reason I care about the nonsense is that when our when my freedom and my privacy is threatened in our society, because I fought in a war that was an unpopular war because I did my duty then I get interested in politics but generally we don't care scientists and engineers don't play that game so I didn't come into this field with some ideological view I was just going to solve problems
0: yeah I can relate to that my dad was a geophysicist and uh, as a kid <laughs> and, you know he he stayed like like you said he kind of stayed a- around science that was his comfort zone but uh, every once in a while when he was watching the news, I just hear him mumble, damn liberal. You know, that was about the yes, well, that was there about you go. the extent of it. I think I mean, one, then one day I asked him, I think what it meant and I still didn't understand, but <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in, in a in a similar environment. So did that have yeah. an influence um, on on the major that you chose going to Vanderbilt?
1: no you know i i didn't really have a lot of direction i wanted to be in theater and rock and roll i used to play guitar with steven stills of famously crosby stills and nash when i was in high school and we were going to go to new orleans together and mardi gras and become famous and my girlfriend told my parents i was going to take this trip and they had the highway patrol pick me up on highway 441 heading north to new orleans and Stephen went on and within two years he had founded the buffalo springfields and then Two more years later, he founded Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and so. I, but by that time, I was in college. I was in Vanderbilt, and I think I went to school at Vanderbilt because I didn't know what else to do, and my dad wanted me to go to engineering school, and so that's what I did.
0: Wow, that's incredible. did Did you guys stay in touch after you uh, stopped playing together?
1: Well, we did. We did. I I saw him when he when he about in nineteen seventy sixty one or two when he played at the Gator Growl in, in the uh, football stadium in Gainesville where the Gators played and so he was doing a solo concert there and I you know I went backstage and he of course you know it just been a couple of years since I've seen him but the next time I saw him was far more interesting. Uh, I uh, I was stationed in San Francisco as I said when I came back from Vietnam in the summer of 1969. And I went down to visit my kissing cousin, who was in L.A. She worked for the man that produced the, the, the hit, a uh, Broadway hit, Hair, mm-hmm. and she was responsible for all of the openings of Hair all over the world. So I met really incredibly interesting people. I actually, uh, you know, dated. I, I won't say who I dated. Anyway, <laughs> uh, she, uh, uh, I wanted, I wanted to find out whether smoking marijuana was this, was so bad that it was worth destroying the careers of these young uh seamen uh, recruits that were caught up in a ring of marijuana smoking at the nuclear power school in in uh in chicago or somewhere in that part of the world and i was on one of these field boards where we could destroy their lives and there was no rules of evidence there was no cross-examination they had no legal representation and i just felt badly about that so i went down to la to figure out what's this marijuana thing all about? But at, at the time, Crosby, Stills and Nash had just come back from their first real big, uh, performance, which was at Woodstock. And they were performing at the Greek theater in LA. So Judy and I went and went to the theater Should climb the fence. And during the break, uh, when they were not performing, I went on this to the back door and knocked on it. And finally, some guy came to the door and he said, well, who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I was called Freddie then, not Frederick. Uh, Eric is a takeoff of Frederick. And I said, I, Stephen Stills and I were buddies together. We went to school together in Gainesville, Florida. So a few minutes later, Stephen came out. And to make a long story short, I was just, he treated me with such grace and respect. He could tell I was in the military because I was ramrod straight. I had a bus cut. You know, I was, I was, I just come back from a year and, as a diver and explosive ordnance specialist in the riverine forces and i was fit as hell anybody could have tell told i was in the military and yet even though they were one of the great anti-war the rock and roll groups he showed a tremendous amount of grace to me personally you know he wasn't one of these kids that said i was a baby killer he understood it and so every time they came up to san francisco i'd get a call from the guy that came to the door on the side of the stage, who was Elliot Roberts, one of the great, great, all-time famous rock and roll uh, promoters that we've ever seen. And uh, I would get a call, and I'd go over to Winterland or Fillmore West, and I'd sit up on the stage at 11 to 12 o'clock till about four in the morning, and it was really quite a sight. I'd go over there in my uh, North Beach leather bell-bottom pants and a <laughs> polyester white shirt you know but in the daytime I was wearing a military uniform with all these ribbons from having been in combat in Vietnam it was a double life yeah. so that was how we connected but I haven't had any real contact with him ever since oh, but at least in the book I'm able to give him a thank you a heads up thank you Stephen it was a t- I didn't realize how tra- traumatized I was from Vietnam and I think that that gracious extension of his understanding that we weren't bad people was a very good thing for my mental health at that time.
0: Yeah, that, that is. He saw past all yes. the stuff and he, he, did. He, he saw the person. Yeah, that, that's that's, right. a, that's a great story. So I got to ask, since you were in the area at the time and um, now that you've told me you were a musician. Did you happen to make it to the Monterey Pop Festival?
1: No, I didn't make it to the Monterey Pop Festival, and I don't think I made it to the Altamont, which is where the where the Rolling yeah. Stones performed, and the uh, the uh, Hell's the, Angels Hell's Angels yep. actually mm-hmm. murdered somebody right right next to the stage. I didn't make that one, and, you know, and I think it's because I, you know, I, I I came back to from Vietnam, and I had just I was blindsided. My college sweetheart, who I'd married just a year before. Uh, left me twice. And so that was really traumatic too.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Um. <laughs> Look,
1: I'm, my story is like a lot of other guys during that time. And there there was no such thing as post-traumatic stress syndrome. There was no support anywhere. Even my own family never said a thing to me when I came back. I mean, we we faced a horrible time. And so you know every time somebody says thank you for your service it kind of makes me kind of tick a little bit because where were you in 1978 79 when i came back from combat you know where were you then you know yeah. but it's now popular to say thank you for your service i just hope people really mean it because these young men and women that go to go to combat particularly we've had several wars in the middle east they they deserve a lot of respect and support
0: yeah absolutely absolutely
1: that i did that i didn't get that yeah. i didn't get
0: yeah unfortunately that that phrase uh, did not did not catch on till later and uh yeah it's uh, you yeah. y- y'all were in some of the worst conditions that americans have ever fought in i'm sure i mean being
1: over well, there it, the, the things I, i've read I mean, you were, it's, you were it's, there. All, it's all bad when yeah. when lives are being lost when you're seeing... The destruction of a civilian society, we killed three million Vietnamese during our war in Vietnam. It was the American war. Hmm. It wasn't the Vietnamese war. It was the American war in Vietnam. But that's another story for another podcast.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned that your own family wouldn't even talk to you. Is that was that because of were they. Against what you were doing, being in the military?
1: No. What I, I the, the best take I can give on that is what my little sister, who's nine years younger than me, said that we were just afraid to ask you.
0: Ah, okay.
1: And uh, but but that shows you how unenlightened people were at the time. I mean, they didn't get it. And nobody got it. I mean, we didn't have psychiatrists and psychologists, and there was no there was no societal system to help people that had been through trauma. Like I said. There was no such thing as post-traumatic stress syndrome. It didn't exist. And so they just didn't they didn't ask it. Ironically, it was thirty years after I came back from Vietnam. I was in San Francisco Bay on the Marin side of the Golden Gate Bridge. There's a park there, a parking area. And I was standing looking over the city of San Francisco and the the uh, Navy, uh, the, the flight group that does Fleet Week, the, you know, the the jets, you know, they do formation flying. I forget what they call them. Mm-hmm. They were flying in practice. And this guy, and, I, and there was this guy next to me who turned out to be a a, a, a photographer for uh, the new Discovery Channel. He was filming it. Huh. And we got to talk. And I said, and I pointed over to Treasure Island a little bit to the left of uh, not Treasure Island, but Alcatraz, and then mm. to the right, Treasure Island. I said, you know, I served there 30 years ago when I came back from Vietnam, and he stood up straight like a ramrod, and he turned to me and he said, thank you for your service. And I'll tell you, it took every ounce of my courage or energy to not just break down and cry like a baby. That's the first time anybody had said anything about my service in Vietnam, much less thanking me for it. It was 30 years later Wow. That's really a, that's really a tragic comment on our society. It really is.
0: Yeah. But at least that guy got it. And uh,
1: made he got it. it. He yeah. got it. Yeah. yeah. And that was before people were saying those things way before. Yeah. He got it.
0: Which is huge.
1: But anyway, is, yeah. that's, that's in the past, you know, I'm fine. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, um, let's go back to the EPI a second. Talk about if you would, your idea to replace the EPA, the independent commission with term limits. I thought that was interesting. And, and why you feel this would work better?
1: Well, we'll get into the whys and wherefores, I hope eventually to mm-hmm. justify what I'm talking about. Yep. But, but today, unlike when I was serving in the Reagan administration, EPA is either controlled by the environmental elite and the Democratic Party or they're controlled by the Republican Party, and, and the policy sloshes back and forth between them. There's no good idea that's going to survive. Nobody's going to manage the agency because the people that are hired like me aren't managers. I happen to be an exception to that rule, but we won't get into that right now. And, uh, you know, we, we just need we, it's been called an independent agency, and there never has been one. And when I was a young engineer serving in Atlanta in the newly formed EPA, the word was that 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 Nixon was going to replace career administrators who came from World War II and the Public Health Service who were engineers uh, and put in political hacks, and that's exactly what he did. Mm-hmm. And they are all been political. They've all been political hacks one way or the other, and it's never changed. And the environmental lobby has controlled. They call it regulatory capture. They have captured EPA for 45 years so epa has only done one thing and that's regulate without any regard to state and local government none whatever which is ridiculous because the vast resources and 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 land use and police powers in the in our in our land are controlled by local city and county government yet we don't ask them to do anything it's really astonishing and 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 we need to change that paradigm and do go from the bottom up not the top down not the potomac down but from local government get programs in place and have them supported, not directed by the federal government, who has no idea how ordinary people live or what local governments do, or the fact that they actually balance budgets mm. where clearly the federal government don't ever do that. They don't understand the value of money. And that's one reason I'm kind of conservative on the you know, size of government side and the idea of writing blank checks. I don't support that yeah but in any event uh the, the the only way to get past this is to set up an independent commission and during my research in the final days last year i found an article about a congressman from uh, new york city who actually proposed doing this he was a democrat and he basically said what my book concluded after writing hundred you know 800 pages that that you know we need to have an independent commission that is that's a nonpartisan commission and we need to hire the best and brightest you know institutional managers and and that we can find who serve for a period of ten years like the FBI directors and his top people like NASA's directors and their top people I mean we have great examples where we actually put people that survive beyond a particular administration that are not beholding to a president or his minions. And that's what we need. And, you know, and, and let it be run by scientists and engineers, or at least to have them have a voice scientists and engineers don't have much voice in EPA. It's all political compromise. And, 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 and science is suborned all the time to ideology and to political considerations. Yet the general public wouldn't have a clue. This is true. Why would they know that? They think, well, EPA must be great, but even today, the more I talk about EPA to ordinary people, they, they know something's wrong. Something's not right with EPA, and they're absolutely right. It is not right. It's totally partisan. And both both parties, both political parties have unclean hands on supporting science to politics. Both of them. It's not just the Democrats and not just the Republicans both of them do this on a regular basis and we're wasting money and time when we should be focusing on real problems which is what engineers solve right
0: right that's right well and also just the the general way it's set up if it uh, if anything goes to the, our political system and I, I think you touched on this earlier it, it's going to be turned over after the term ends after the two-year, four-year, whatever term it is, and more than likely going to be changed by the next person. So
1: anything sustainable
0: well, right. is, is very mean, difficult. Let me, let me, yeah, go ahead.
1: Go ahead, sorry. No, 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 go well, ahead. Well, let, yeah. let me tell you, well, I guess I'm ahead of you. I know exactly where you're going. You know, people have heard about the Clean Power Plan. Well, that was a body of regulations that was passed under the Obama administration that set targets for every 50 state, every one of our 50 states to reduce carbon emissions, to reduce the 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 growing problem of uh, global warming and let's not get into science of this i we can talk about that in another podcast but but that's what they did and they they used the old command and control federal permit enforcement mantra that the that the environmental elite have captured epa on and they did it badly and what happened what you know we entered into a treaty on global warming and you know we had the strongest hand to play because we had this regulation that required every state to reduce carbon so that we would meet a certain target by 2050 and you know we wouldn't perhaps have to deal with these horrific effects of global warming uh, like drought and, and storms and big hurricanes and fires and all these things you're hearing about and seeing and witnessing uh but the problem is that uh uh, that it, it, they overreached the law, and 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 twenty six state attorney generals from Republican states sued EPA, and it went to the Supreme Court. And in, in two thousand and fifteen, one year before Donald Trump was uh, elected president, the Supreme Court stayed these rules. They were never implemented. It, they overreached. You cannot take a real simple sliver of a statement in a fifty year old law. And completely reorganize our energy economy around it that's just total crap yeah. and, and, and 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 i'm an engineer i don't have to be a lawyer to know that wouldn't have held up but they just did it badly mm. and uh and so it was stayed so what did trump do the same attorney the same uh, attorney generals from the states in this particular case oklahoma scott pruitt became bpa's first administrator and he was good attorney and he understood in order to prevent the next administration from going back to the Clean Power Plan, we're gonna promulgate under a body of law called the Administrative Procedures Act, uh, a new body of regulations that we're gonna, and and they're gonna be written so nothing changes. And, and, And that was smart because you can't use an executive order to vacate a regulation promulgated under the Administrative Procedures Act. So Gina McCarthy, ironically, The woman who is the very person who was responsible for the Clean Power Plan, which was overturned by the Supreme Court. She is now President Biden's domestic czar on global warming and on climate change. And and even she knows and she's never admitted this and she should admit it and just step back that uh, that uh, they can't back and re-promulgate a new regulation. It will take them four to six to eight years to do that. So, And they, and that's, that's not even addressing the fundamental uh, issues of why the Supreme Court stopped the whole thing to begin with. They can't overcome that. So that's just a perfect example of this sloshing back and forth and back and forth. And nothing of consequence is going to get done by EPA ever again. And it's 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 already met the point of diminishing returns in terms of its effectiveness. So it needs to be abolished as an as a, you know, agency established by executive order. There needs to be a bill, which I've written in my book in great detail, and it's written in English, by the way. I'm an engineer. We can write pretty well. It's not I'm not a lawyer. And if if that that template is taken, the Congress can pass it and we can move forward.
0: We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LaVonne Pitney is incredibly well versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LaVonne's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as as productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LeBon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LaVon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871. That's 713-805-8871. Or contact LeBon at sold at pitneyproperties.com. Explain the meaning of Sewergate.
1: Well, here's what happened. When, when when Ronald Reagan won the election in, in 1980, uh, it, 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 the, the people forget this. In your generation, you might have remembered some of this, but we had double-digit inflation, double-digit interest rates. We, we, we had what they call stagflation, which is the worst economic condition. Condition you, a country could ever get in, and we were waiting in lines to buy gas and get oil to warm our homes, particularly if you lived in the east where they use oil for burners and homes, and and we had hostages in Iran, right? The American hostages in the in Iran, and 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 Reagan's Trump. Jimmy Carter, who, by the way, I knew personally, I'd, I'd canoed with him down the Shatuka River. He was a fine man. I respected him, but Reagan beat him, woofed him, woofed him. Mm. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and what happened was everything about Reagan's philosophy, he had deeply abiding philosophy. He believed in getting, he believed to get big government off the backs of the American people, revitalize the economy. Regulatory relief—that was kind of his mantra. I mean, he—he he just believed that in his heart, and that's what he believed, and that's a good thing when you have a president that knows what he believes. You have a target, and that means the other party can find a way to negotiate with him. And Reagan had a great relationship with Tip, Tip O'Neill from Boston, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who was control of the House, and they got a lot done together because Reagan had abiding beliefs. But the, the thing about Reagan's agenda was it was anathema to what the environmentalists believed. They want big government. They want to control everything on the banks of the Potomac. They want to spend. I mean, that's what they believe. They have one goal, which is some notion of environmental purity, which was a, like a like a god to them. And it was presented that way. Well, so what they did was they, 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 they coordinated amongst themselves this big lobby that was formed in Washington and decided that they're going to run the new Reagan people out of town, and they did. They ran us out of town. It took them three years to do it. And I can name the people, the events, how it all happened. It's in the book. It's a very interesting story. But what what was lost and what wasn't understood at the time, including by me and my colleagues, is that this wasn't about the environment. This was about power presidential politics. It was about how to weaken Ronald Reagan. And, And EPA was... Reagan's Achilles heel, so that he would be defeated by a Democrat in in 1984, mm. and uh, that's what that and they dubbed it. The media dubbed it "Sewergate" because it was the first gate after Watergate. It was the first quote controversy. All these allegations of illegality, wrongdoing, favoritism, da 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 da. It was all BS, Mm. but that was the way it was portrayed, and the irony is that the environmental beat in the major major liberal establishment media like the New York Times and the Washington Post who covered me extensively, Every day virtually, uh, they, they the, the environmental beat were all young, idealistic kids that didn't understand the structure of their so the law. So the Sierra Club and the Wildlife Federation, the Isaac Walton League and the Natural Resources Defense Council and the Environmental Defense Fund, on and on and on, fed them bad information. So their reporting was just horrible. Factually, it was horrible. And we couldn't push back. I mean, I couldn't write enough, you know, op-eds or appear before enough editorial boards to counter the complete crap that was being slung at us. But at the end of the day, there were some stupid things that were done. I mean, you know, every administration makes mistakes. We made them. I didn't. I don't think, but my colleagues did. And when I went to jail for lying, which was stupid, I mean, she deserved it. And that kind of proved the, the allegation that we were somehow backing away from the goals of the environmental laws. And I cannot tell you how rat grated at me because I would read these articles. I got so damn mad at one point. I, I asked one of my senior staff people to set up, uh, editorial boards and the major newspapers, and I flew right to New to Washington, to uh, New York, and went to the New York Times and the. Wall Street Journal, and I just railed at them for their piss-poor reporting. I said, you never contacted my office. You never tried to reach me. You should be talking to the man that's setting the policy. I'm in control of the policy. That's my authority to do it. If you got a problem with it, talk to me so at least you get your facts straight. And I got great reception from that. You know, I got great editorials and great coverage. And eventually, as things moved along, the, the young idealistic young news reporters that were writing such bad stories because they were being sold a bill of goods by the environmental elite in the environmental lobby, It was take, they were taken over by the political writers, you know, the Jack Andersons of the world. I mean, and, and then things changed. The political writers were much more seasoned, older, experienced. They'd been around a long time, and they saw what was going on. They started writing stories that had basically saying that you know things like the environment you know the environmentalists and the Democrats are beating EPA up and BPE and the EPA's top people, including Eric Eisness. and 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 they're missing an opportunity to make corrections to the way in which EPA is carrying out these laws, which are in great contention. So when we came into office, to go back to the beginning of your question, you know you had this blowback from industry. <laughs> And the and municipalities and their scientific and engineering advisors that EPA was arrogant, condescending, overbearing, that they were confusing their message. They were writing regulations that tried to attempt to answer every possible problem that could arise and prescribe a one-size-fits-all solution. And and they were they they were asking the Reagan administration to change all that. We called it regulatory reform, not regulatory relief. Reform. And I'll explain if you want later what that means. And and that that's that that's the the the, the 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 general public had no idea. There were so much of our society was so tired of EPA's arrogance and condescension and, and their confusing messages and changing priorities that they asked the Reagan people to do something about it. And that's why I joined the Reagan administration so I could do something about it. And I did. Mm.
0: So the book has taking you 11 years to write. You started in 2010. How what's the process of of writing this book been like for you especially I mean you, you consider everything that's going on in the news especially now with environment um, yeah. You know, carbon yeah. emissions and all this stuff. Uh, did, did you right. see yourself pivoting a lot while you were writing, or did you pretty much? Uh, is your vision of what you wanted to write in this book has it been maintained throughout those eleven years? No, it
1: it, it, it changed dramatically. And here is a couple of points I'll make. One is, I started out to write the book as a tutorial for students in 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 government. You know, studying you know civics or studying. Uh, uh, what, what's the term? Uh, uh, well, you know, environmental policy and politics or just in general government. Mm-hmm. So they would understand the context and how things really work. What, what's the, what happens when you're on the abrasive line between policy and politics? It is a rough and tumble world. So I wanted to write my story of that, but it, as I, be, I knew I had to do some research, I had a treasure trove, of of documents that many of which have never seen the light of day that i possessed as the assistant administrator for water a presidential appointee and i took them with me and i could and i turned them over to colorado state university water resource archives in the morgan library in in fort collins and they have them all there's 20 or 30 feet of those documents and i i could use primary source documents things i signed you know uh, uh, briefing papers for the present things that have never been seen and i knew i had a lot i could write this book on that i don't have to research anything but i began to kind of come to the realization that sometimes you don't know what you don't know hmm. so i started doing some research and and then it unfolded into a story which was far more compelling than just you know here's a tutorial on how to play in the world of environmental policy And and it, it was a historic document. So it took a long time to do that. And I was stunned at what I found. I mean, and I'm very clear in the book to point out what I knew when I took office and what I didn't know when I took office and what I learned long after I was out of office. And it's really a compelling story to realize when you go back and work in a high level position in government was the power and reach that I had, how ill prepared people are. You know, and I have a whole chapter called the it's part two is a five part book. It's part two, chapter three. It's called EPA's Anatomy. Anybody that ever wants to get into government ought to read that. It's not about just EPA. It's any federal bureaucracy, and it's a stunner. It by itself is a book. It's, it's, it's a, an incredible revelation of what you walk into and what the forces that are there are playing and what you don't know and the process of the people. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great chapter for anybody that wants to understand how government works or doesn't work it really doesn't work very well. And, you know, I'm not being critical because our founding fathers created three branches of government and they did not want an executive branch that was too effective. You know, if we'd had an executive branch that was really effective and Donald Trump got his way, we'd be living in a dictatorship probably right now. But 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 these checks and balances keep that from happening. So I'm saying advisedly that, you know, that the government is designed not to work effectively, so just with a wink and a nod, accept that, but then you can still make it better. You don't. You can't ever make it perfect, and that would be a, a futile effort. So anyway, I started out as a, as a book that was going to be a, a college book for kids in school, and then it turned into a very important uh, early history that really explains why and how we got where we are today. And more important, what do we do for the future? I mean, look, if if there's anybody out there who's listening to this that doesn't believe climate change isn't the end of the world as we know it, even within the lifetimes of our children, then they just don't get it. And it it is a staggering threat to us. And and I'm an engineer and I can wax eloquently about how the science behind that. And, uh, you know, my grandchildren, I've got five of them, are going to see mass migration because of global warming into America. We're going to see out migration from areas of America that are now p- great productive agricultural areas. We're gonna see the kind of fires we've been seeing. We're gonna be seeing temperature climbing where people are not gonna be able to survive. It's gonna get that bad. And what what you're not being told by anybody is that even if we did everything we needed to do to prevent the globe from increasing its temperature two degrees Celsius in the next 27 years, 28 years, it, it'll take a hundred years or so before we actually see the positive impact of controlling carbon emissions today and meeting those 2050 goals. We're still going to live through this thing. And I mean, where you live is going to be important. How you live is going to be important. I mean, this is coming and just ask anybody in the country that's been subjected to repeated flooding, like in Texas and, and tornadoes at, uh, in the center of the country, the wildfires in the West, Canada. the, the I mean, the, what's happened in the Arctic and the Antarctic? I mean, if you don't think that's real, you know, you're smoking something. And uh, we got to get serious about this thing. And that this book is really a future, a way to address this in a way that can be very effective and could be implemented in a relatively short time, but it involves upending the historical approach that EPA has taken, which is we'll regulate from the banks to Potomac and engaging local governments and starting things at the local level and having the federal and state governments support local efforts that are designed by the things I write in my book.
0: Yeah, and there are arguments that you know, the Earth has our planets been going through in um, oscillations. Over yeah. thousands or hundreds yeah. of thousands of years, you know yeah. the the uh, ice caps used to be all the way down to Ohio, and then you know the Earth has, has been warmer, way warmer than it than it has before. But yeah. here, here's here's the thing that you cannot dispute about what's going on today: we are emitting carbon that you cannot reverse that process. You can only stop putting more into it, and that is definitely yeah. something yeah. Right. that's not a natural process.
1: The new ice. We talk about global yeah. warming, but this is the beginning of the next ice age. I yeah. mean, that's what's happening. So we're accelerating. What's going to happen to us in fifteen 000 to twenty thousand years? We're going to make it happen in a hundred years. Mm. And if people like the lives they have now, if they like to come to the Black Hills and see the buffalo roam on, you know, Custer National estate Park. They're not going to be able to do that in thirty or forty years. It's not going to be the same. It's going to be gone. If they were living long enough, they'd see that change take place in ten to fifteen thousand years. So, yeah, I mean, the people that deny this is a problem and say oh, this is normal, it's normal in in a geologic sense, but not in a hundred years. Right. Not in the time frame we're looking at now. And that's this that people don't listen and, and they, they just don't want to hear what they bad news. But it's it's not that we can't fix it. But we have to acknowledge there's a problem. And my book makes a very strong case that you got to start with a problem statement. The Obama EPA and Gina McCarthy, who headed EPA, did not start with a problem statement. She jumped to a wild solution that she had no authority to do. And now poor old Biden is stuck with her, feeding him a lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense because she doesn't know what to do. But she's, you know, she's the... She's the big head of the environmental movement. She, she was the president of the Natural Resources Defense Council before she got this job. And you know, she's the one that's blowing in his ear. But if you read as I do, you know two, five to ten articles on global warming a day, which I get from my Apple News, which is a great source of every kind of news from all over the world—Bloomberg, Variety, Rolling Stone, New York Times, Washington Post, LA, whatever. Uh, you, you realize that even she does; she's beginning to crumble. You know, we don't have any credibility going into Glasgow, which is the second UN conference on global warming, which is scheduled for November 1st. I'm going to be there.
0: Yeah. You said that you're expecting your book to be very controversial, Eric. What, what are your expectations and how do you, do you have any plans to deal with that? Um, maybe through your blog or, or what, what are your expect expectations well, when well, your book is released? Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, I, when I wrote this book, I really wasn't thinking about, I, my desire was never to make any money. I mean, this was about uh, my legacy. It was about my, my family and my, my father and his history and, who, who I respected, my, my uncle was the founding director of the Boston Museum of Science, one of the two great learning museums in the world. And and he was a map maker, a, a, uh, which they say is called a cartographer. He was an explorer. He was the first to reach the summit of many mountains. My aunt Barbara in 1949 was the first woman to reach the summit of Mount McKinley. And she climbed it twice and she left <laughs> little children behind women didn't do that in the fifties. Wow! And, uh, he, my uncle turned down the offer of Amelia Earhart to be his navigator on her fateful round the world trip. <sighs> and I mean, what a legacy, but he was my surrogate, Father, when I was going to school in New Hampshire, he's the one that got me into that school because of his reputation. I could never have gotten in there on my academic credentials when I was fourteen. And uh, I used to climb mountains. I used to. He used to wake me up at four in the morning and take me out to Squam Lake when it was ten below zero, and with an auger, a hand auger, drill a hole in the ice so he could drop a plumb line over his transit and you know measure the next distance to the next you know whatever. Mapping Squam Lake for fishermen and boaters. That's what he did on the weekend. So (laughs) between between he and my dad, you know, I had this rich intellectual, you know, upbringing. It was all around me. And um, and uh, and so I just wanted to, you know, I want to honor these people. And I do in this book. And and his forefathers, their story's phenomenal. They were immigrants from Norway. And, And my mother's side were immigrants from Scotland. So, you know, I've got an interesting history in Northern Europe. That I tell some about and what these people did in America and American soil as immigrants. So it's really about it's really about the message and not about the money. And it's about, you know, who knows if it's going to ever get legs, but because it's a big book, it's going to probably be published in two volumes. Because it's a big book, you know, when you write for 10 years, you're going to come up with something pretty big. And I don't want to dumb it down. I can easily write a 200 word summary and become a bestseller. I'm certain of that, but I want this to get out there for the record. It is, um, as my, is my mentor, Dr. Claude Terry of Atlanta, who, God bless him, died last year. He was a founder of a grassroots environmental organization in Atlanta when I first showed up there. Uh, you know, he said, this is a very significant piece of American historic literature. And and, and I look at this, and I, when I read that, I thought, holy cow, you you really believe that? And, and you know, and he convinced me that it was very vital that it got out there. So eventually, it's going to get legs. But the reason it's going to be controversial is because I basically call out The environmental lobby and the environmental elite is that you guys have been beating a dead horse for fifty for a large part of fifty years. We cannot solely rely on federal the federal EPA writing a regulation Putting it in the permit and enforcing those permits, we have run the gauntlet. We have to use more economic approaches. We have on global warming; it's got to be cap and trade. We have to we have to look at taxation uh, to to internalize the cost of pollution, so it, it it motivates industry to never pollute to begin with, because it's a far more expensive to clean it up after they have discharged it than it is if they prevent it to begin with. And we know. This to be true, so my my whole approach is more of an economic carrot stick thing. It doesn't involve EPA a whole lot. The thing I worry about EPA is we spent trillions of dollars in 50 years controlling industries and in discharging hazardous and toxic waste in the atmosphere, on the land, and the marine environment in uh, water. And, uh, and and we and we have a, a system in place that in, where all the states now do the heavy lifting. We have to be sure that we protect those gains. And so my 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 new EPA, my new Environmental Protection Commission, is designed to do that. And I won't get into the detail, but I know how to do it. I mean, I'm the, I, I'm crafting the way forward. If anybody will pay attention, we have to protect those gains because they were the least cost-effective way we could have done it. We did absorb it in our economy, but it did create a political divide where now the Republicans are saying, "Let's just get rid of EPA," and that. Is not a solution.
0: Eric's book is called Gorilla in the Closet. His website is GorillaInTheCloset.com. Check them both out. I know I will. Eric, this has been a fantastic conversation. And as we said on the in at the beginning, uh, I would very much like to have you back because there's still so much to get into on, on so many different subjects. Um, but I, I'd like to wrap it up here and um, <coughs> excuse me. Get to our what we call on your cron our legacy question, and that is if in a 100 years from now, someone's listening to this podcast, what do you want to say to them? What legacy message would you like to leave for us today? Speaking of legacies.
1: Well, if you're if if you're listening in a bunker because you're surrounded by fire Hmm. or, uh, or catastrophe, obviously, I've failed to get the word out. Right, but if you're if you still get internet and you still have telephones and you still have a life, then somebody got it. Somebody heard it. Not just from me. There are going to be other people that will come along and pile on this idea. I'm absolutely certain of it. They're out there. Uh, I talked to one today. His name is uh, uh, McIntyre. He's written a book that, that focuses on the economic approaches to environmental protection, which is what I believe in. And I talked to him because I was interested in what he had to say. And at the end of the conversation, he says, The thing, the difference between you and me, Eric, is you have such, so much vast experience. You can bring real life experience to these words that you've written. Mine are a little bit more theoretical, but I said, I don't care. We both reached the same conclusion. We have to have a bottom up, local up, local government local people to the uh, initiatives seeded by the federal government as well as a top down to tackle this huge problem and if we do that uh 100 years from now people are going to be saying thank goodness there were people that thought like mcintyre mcintyre or mcintosh i think it was name was and eric isis because had, had they not stood up and said these things in the face of all this controversy and all these other problems we have in our society, then we we might have, we might be in a bunker right now, trying to survive.
0: Yeah. Well, we can certainly start now, and we should all have the mindset that we need to look out for our, our future generations, and not just the mindset. Well, I'm not going to be here; it's not my problem. It is our problem. <laughs> exactly. It is our it problem. It is
1: right. Yeah. Right.
0: Eric, thanks so much. I really enjoyed that conversation. That was great. Thank you so much okay. for being our our, our guest tonight.
1: Anytime.